Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts this day in history class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that raises the curtain on everyday history and lets it take a bow. I'm Gabe Luzier, and today we're heading under the big top to try to figure out why the greatest show on Earth is often called the worst best picture in history. The day was January 10th, 1952. Cecil B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on Earth premiered at Radio City Music Hall in New York. It was the second-to-last film the director ever made, and it was nothing if not ambitious. The big-budget spectacle functions as a celebration of the great American circus, depicting all the high-flying thrills of its many acts, as well as the -the behind-the-scenes drama of its motley performers. The film's story centers on circus manager Brad Braden, played by Charlton Heston, and his desperate efforts to keep his struggling show on the road. Along for the ride is Braden's center ring star and sometimes girlfriend, trapeze artist Holly, as portrayed by Betty Hutton. 
She resents Braden's obsessive devotion to the circus because it leaves little room in his life for her. But she also knows he's unlikely to change, as he was, quote, born with sawdust in his veins. To help boost ticket sales, Braden hires the great Sebastian, a world-famous trapeze star played by Cornell Wilde, who insists he be given top billing. He and Holly butt heads at first, but after their high-wire war nearly results in Sebastian's death, she soon finds herself torn between her workaholic boyfriend and her new hotshot rival. Also thrown into the mix are a flirtatious elephant trainer, a couple of scheming racketeers, and a warm-hearted clown named Buttons, played by Jimmy Stewart, who's secretly on the run from the law. Although packed with sentiment and a fair bit of intrigue, the story of the greatest show on earth is pretty bare-bones. In fact, the narrative melodrama only makes up a fraction of the two-and-a-half-hour movie. The bulk of the runtime is actually devoted to footage of real-life circus acts, which DeMille shot on location in Sarasota, Florida, where the Ringling Brothers' Barnum & Bailey Circus was spending its off-season. Paramount paid $250,000 to secure the naming rights and participation of the circus, and for six weeks, the performers mounted a private show there just for DeMille and his cameras. The filmmaker captured every kind of act and stunt you could think of, lion tamers, tightrope walkers, acrobats, you name it. He also filmed the wins and losses of the Midway, as well as the back-breaking labor of setting up and taking down the Big Top. Most directors would have used just a small portion of that B-roll footage in the final picture, just enough to add context or to establish a location, but not to Mill. He frequently interspersed entire acts into his film, essentially putting the story on pause and allowing the circus to take center stage. The result of this unusual format is a film that often feels more like a documentary or a travelogue than it does a full-fledged narrative. Some of the behind-the-scenes footage even includes voiceover from DeMille himself, where he breathlessly describes the sights and sounds of the circus. Take a listen. We bring you the circus, the Pied Piper whose magic tunes lead children of all ages from six to sixty into a tinsel and spun candy world of reckless beauty and mounting laughter and whirling thrills of rhythm, excitement, and grace, of daring and blaring and dance, of high-stepping horses and high-flying stars. The director's grandiose narration makes clear his affection and reverence for the traveling circus, but modern audiences aren't likely to feel the same way. Many of the acts glimpsed in The Greatest Show on Earth would be deemed offensive or even illegal by today's standards. But even setting aside the animal abuse and racist stereotypes, a day at the circus just no longer carries the wide cultural appeal that it did in the early 20th century. In fact, the circus's popularity was already waning in the early 1950s. It was still a popular form of entertainment, but attendance had begun to shrink, and the advent of television wasn't doing it any favors. In that sense, the greatest show on earth can be viewed as something of a farewell tribute to traveling circuses, or at least to their glory days. The medium had enthralled generations of children, including DeMille himself, so in the twilight of both their careers, he wanted to give the circus one last turn in the spotlight. And as it turned out, the director wasn't the only one feeling nostalgic. Audiences and critics alike praised the movie's blend of spectacle and sentiment. 
It went on to earn nearly $16 million at the box office, more than any other movie that year, and it won Best Picture at the 25th Annual Academy Awards. The Greatest Show on Earth faced some stiff competition that year, including High Noon, The Quiet Man, and Moulin Rouge. Many critics and film buffs now argue that any of those would have been more deserving of Best Picture, but looking back, it's not hard to imagine why Academy voters made the choice they did. Like DeMille, many of them likely had a soft spot for the circus and shared his desire to pay homage to a source of joy from their childhoods. But more than that, they probably wanted to pay tribute to the director himself. DeMille had been making movies since the silent era, but at 71 years old, he had yet to receive an Oscar, and his pace was clearly slowing. The Academy likely wanted to recognize DeMille's decades-long career and figured The Greatest Show might be their last chance to do it. Of course, that turned out not to be the case, as DeMille would go on to make one final film before his death in 1959, the biblical epic The Ten Commandments, once again starring Charlton Heston. Both of the director's final films featured many of his calling cards, including larger-than-life set pieces, archetypal characters, lengthy running times, and cutting-edge special effects. However, DeMille's ode to the circus hasn't enjoyed the enduring appeal of the Ten Commandments. Some people watch the latter film every Easter, while most viewers would likely have a hard time sitting through the greatest show even once. Still, we shouldn't mistake changing tastes in entertainment for bad filmmaking. DeMille pulled out all the stops to deliver the majesty and mystery of the circus on the big screen, and for the most part, he succeeded. For starters, he shot the film in Technicolor, ensuring that the dazzling sets and costumes would look just as rich and bright in the theater as they did in real life. And while the circus acts alone provide more spectacle than the average blockbuster, DeMille took things a step further by including a gripping train wreck sequence at the film's climax. The circus train crash was achieved using detailed models intercut with shots of live actors and trained animals escaping from cages. And though the special effects may look dated by today's standards, at the time of release, plenty of viewers were left scratching their heads at how DeMille, a master showman in his own right, had pulled off such a technical feat. One such viewer was a young Steven Spielberg, and the film-going experience not only stuck with him, it set the course of his entire professional life. As the filmmaker later explained, quote, I was maybe six or seven years old when my father came to tell me, I'm going to take you to see the greatest show on earth. He explained that there were going to be lion tamers and circus acts, clowns and trapeze artists, and we walked into a dimly lit room. It felt like a place of worship, a synagogue, but I still didn't understand about the greatest show on earth. There were seats, not bleachers all facing forward. There was a large red curtain, and it opened, and there was an image. And I realized that my father had not taken me to the circus, but to a movie about a circus, the first movie I had ever seen, Cecil B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on Earth. The feeling of disappointment lasted about ten minutes, and then I was a victim of the drug called cinema. I was no longer in a church. I became part of an experience. Today, The Greatest Show on Earth works mostly as a time capsule, a visual record of a bygone form of entertainment. But its cinematic legacy is more far-reaching. 
As the spectacle that inspired future makers of spectacle, the film continues to influence the tone and scale of American movie making to this day. I'm Gabe Lusier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you want to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any feedback you'd like to share, feel free to send it my way by writing to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.